Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. As a young hospital administrator, Jamia Crockett developed multiple sclerosis. Surrounded by doctors and other healthcare professionals, she still struggled with the early stages of the disease, the diagnosis, and the management. She discovered that the most important thing in chronic illness is to be your own advocate. She's gone on to devote herself to patient advocacy. And in this podcast, she shares some of her experiences and insights over the years. It was an enormous pleasure to spend time with Jamia Crockett. Jamia, you're very welcome to the show. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you. And what really moved me when we set up this conversation is that originally we were meant to be speaking at 3 a.m. your time and you didn't bat an eyelid and you said, I'll be there. And I thought, this is somebody we need to hear from. So (laughs) you're very welcome. Well, thank you so much. And being that you are literally across the world, I was like, I will make myself available because the kids will be asleep. So at three o'clock, I can always sneak up, do a conversation, have some adult time, and then go back to sleep and get ready for the next day. So I'm happy that we were able to make this connection. And it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to speak to you and and whoever's out there in the world and make some good connections. I want to start with the difficult part of your story, which is that you have a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. How did that diagnosis manifest? What was that like for you? Well, that's such an interesting point to start because if anyone that knows me knows that I've been a go-getter since I was five. So I've always been nonstop doing things. And so MS was a real sneaky little companion. And so I remember I was in grad school and I was working with the CEO of a hospital. And so I was in before the boss. I left after the boss. It was like 12 to 18 hours days, but I was thriving. That was like all the energy. And one day I was like, wow, uh, what's going on with my left foot? It just seemed like it was dragging. And so I just thought that was odd. And I was like, oh, it just means I need a new pair of heels because high heel shoes are my thing. And I'm a fashion person. So I was always about the shoes. So I was like, oh, that just means I need new shoes. And so I didn't think that this was a real manifestation of anything. And so then the foot nuance, I guess it was a foot drop. But at the time, I just thought it was just my foot was flopping. And I was like, well, I'll get some new shoes and it'll be fine. And it resolved itself within a couple of days. And I just attributed that to just walking funny or sleeping on it weird. And then a couple of months went by and everything was fine. And then I woke up and my left arm was numb, but it was numb from the elbow to the wrist. And it was such a weird spot to be numb. And I I was like, okay, I must have slept with my arm weird. So I shook it off and I kept going. And so then a couple of months later, I was numb from my head to my toes on the right side. And so I was talking to the assistant and I was just like, I've been numb all day. And she was kind of like, what do you mean? I was like, yeah, I can't feel my face on you know, my right side. And she was just like, Jamia, that's not normal. You need to see a doctor. No, I'm in healthcare. So I'm in a hospital all day long with medical folks all day long. And I was like, yeah, I'll just grab a physician and just see if this whole numb face is a thing or not. And so I stopped one of my colleagues and I was like, hey, I think I'm numb on one side. And they were like, you need to see a neurologist. This feels like something a little bit more serious. And so I did. And while I was there, they, you know, the neurologist was like, well, I know your boss. I know you're a, a grad student. This is your residence, residency. You're just stressed. You're a young lady. You're fairly healthy. You're just stressed. And so you just take something to sleep and, you know, walk it off. 
So I believed her because I was like, yeah, I'm sure that's exactly what it is. So she gave me something to help me sleep. And I had the best sleep I've ever had. And we're talking about 20 years later. And that was the best sleep I've ever had. I woke up the next day and I was refreshed and everything was back to normal. But it wasn't until a couple of months after that is when my body was like, look, we have given you all these signs and you're not listening. And I lost the ability to move. I left, I lost whole muscle strength and functioning on the right side. And I fell in my office, like just collapsed like a sack of potatoes. And that's what I knew. Something was really wrong. And I remember it was such a commotion. So they came in my office like, Jamia, what's wrong? And I was like, I can't get up. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, I just can't get up. Like, I cannot get up. So he had to carry me to that same you know, neurologist that I saw earlier. And that's when he was like, yeah, we got to run some tests. And so we did the test. And a couple of days later, he sat me down. And I'm like, okay, what's going on with my leg? Because now it's hanging like a limp noodle. <laughs> and this whole drag on my right side is kind of a bummer on my outfits. And I'm trying to be an executive and I cannot function this way. And so he was just like, yeah, well, all your tests signify or, you know, kind of lead, this, lead me to this conclusion that you've got MS. And so I heard those two letters and I was like, MS, that's a master's in science. I was like, no, doctor, I have an MHA. <laughs> that's a master's in health administration. Yeah, that's what I'm working on. But I appreciate you telling me what, okay. So it was a huge disconnect. And I went into trying to like be smarter than the physician, like MS was not a clinical you know, disease. It was a, you know, a doctorate. It was a study. So and he was just like, no, to me, a multiple sclerosis. This is a disease. You have it. And I was like, wow, okay. So I'm like, so what does that mean? And then that's when I think the world got really small. And it was the, kind of the, you know, Charlie Brown, womp, womp, womp. He's telling me all these things. I'm just looking at him like, I don't really know what you're saying, Doc, but okay. Like, and he, I left his office with a stack of medicine options. So he, I, at some point, he must have said something about treatment. And I just looked at him like, I just nodded and smiled like, okay. And he said, well, you got to pick one. And I was like, okay. And I just went home and I looked at the material. It was all Greek to me. And then I saw one that was like one shot a day, a week, once a week. And I'm like, well, I'll just pick that one because who wants to have a shot every day or every other day? So let's go with the, uh, the once a week therapy. And that's how I picked my therapy. I did not have a consultation. No one walked me through the pros and cons. It was none of that. It was just, here's some material you're smart, read it, and you pick one. So I just picked one. And that's how I started my MS journey. It was just bizarre and completely out of touch. Like there was no patient-physician relationship. There was no dialogue. It was all done kind of in a vacuum. And I was fortunate enough that I had the relapsing form of MS. So it comes and goes and comes and goes. And so by the time I started therapy, I was kind of back to normal as far as what I could tell. And so I just kept going. I just kept working normal, just kept going. And no one warned me like, hey, if you have MS, heat might be a problem for you. I didn't know that till I was shopping in August in the hot summer day at the grocery store and got stuck in the dairy aisle. I just could not move because I got so overheated, but I didn't know that heat was a thing. I didn't know about the fatigue. I didn't know about any of these things. I didn't really have any support and I didn't have a real clinical. I mean, for me to be in a hospital, you would have thought I would have had all the access and resources available. But it, it just wasn't so. And maybe it was because of my own kind of residence to accept that I had a disease and that I was going to have to manage this like every day for the rest of my life. And or I just didn't know what questions to ask. I didn't know. I just had nothing. And so I just <laughs> stumbled through the first three or four years of my diagnosis. Just, oops, I guess that doesn't work. Or 
I didn't know optic neuritis meant that you could lose color in your eyes. But I lost color in my eyes for six six weeks. And every day I woke up like, oh, it's another cloudy day. And then I wake up fully. And then I'm like, oh, no, the sun is out because the right eye <laughs> lost color vision. And so if I was on my left side, everything was gray. And then when I would sit up straight with both eyes, then I, you know, my left eye would do all the color. So I was like, oh, no, it is sunny outside. And it wasn't until my husband at the time was like, check your eyes. I was like, it's gray. I said, it's another gray day. And he was like, what are you talking about? It's completely bright in this room. And I'm like, no, it's cloudy. <laughs> it's like gray and cloudy. And he was just like, you need to check your eyes. And that's when you do the like one eye, one eye, one eye. And that's when I realized, oh, I don't see color in my right eye. Oops, maybe that's uh, something to do with MS. Maybe, maybe not. And that's literally how I kind of stumbled into all the wonderful nuances of MS dome, all the weird things that can happen to your body at any time. And I didn't have a management plan. I had, I was just kind of flailing. And I really lost a sense of myself because I didn't have a clue. I just didn't have a clue. And so it wasn't until much later that I kind of decided that I needed to figure out my path. Like I couldn't keep stumbling into another exacerbations and stumbling into, oh, now you are numb from the waist down. That must be an exacerbation. So now you go to to the ED and do a a steroid treatment. And then you're like, well, if I'm having all these exacerbations, maybe that once a week medicine isn't working. So I should probably talk to my doctor about that maybe. And so I did. So I had those conversations, but they were painful. They were not well received by my physician team at the time. And so I was just really left with a lot more questions than answers and just feeling very isolated and very kind of like, I must be the only person in the world with multiple sclerosis because I was the only person I knew with it. I had no sense of community. I had, I had nothing. I was in a vacuum, just kind of stumbling along, discovering quirks about how my MS was for me, but not having any kind of community, no conversation, no, I didn't have any say in my treatment as far as that at that time. And then I decided one day I was like, no, I'm done. This is not the media that I used to be. Like whoever this person is, is not who she, who who I used to be. And I decided also that I didn't like my therapies. I didn't like, cause I moved by that point, all the exacerbations, they were like, okay, you got to move to another medicine. And I was like, well, which one's left? There's only like three more, you know, two more left at the time. So like, let's try the ones to do a shot every other day. And that did stabilize me for a while, but who wants to give them a shot, a shot every other day? And it just became too much. And so I was like, I got to figure out something else because this is not working. And that's when I decided that I was going to turn my story around. And that's when I got the fight. And I had a speech from my doctor as to why I was going to get on this new medicine. And I had my notes and everyone was just like, you're going to tell the doctor? As if, and I was like, yes, I'm going to tell the doctor what it is, what I'm not going to do anymore. And if they don't like it, I'm going to have to find a new doctor. And that was my plan. And that was just so, my, my family was like, you can't talk to a doctor like that. that you, you don't do that. And I'm like, well, I'm going to. My life is not where it's supposed to be. And I got to take control of it. So I'm doing it. And so I went into that physician's office, had my little speech ready. I had done some research, finally started really kind of being more connected to community and some other MSers out in the world. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And so I went in there already to, to ask for this new therapy. And the doctor was like, okay. And we had a great conversation. And that's when I realized that the advocacy starts with yourself. No one can advocate for you except for you. And once you find your voice and you find the thing, then you bring other people along and they will help support you. 
But since I had never articulated my own needs as a patient and my own path, no one really, everyone thought I was okay because I looked fine. Like I didn't look physically impaired. I could still walk. I was still wearing my heels. I still looked fine. But on the inside, I was, you know, kind of like, I don't want to say dying inside, but I was just barely functioning. I was losing so much time from just trying to manage the disease. Two things about that story really bother me. The first is, and there are medical students listening, I particularly would like this relay to them. The idea that a patient comes in with neurological symptoms and somebody tells them you're stressed without knowing anything else about them, without knowing the context of their lives, other than that they are a student, you must be stressed. That's why you're, n- you're numb in the face. It doesn't make any anatomical sense whatsoever. No, no. And thinking back, I was like, here I am, you know, a, you know, a 20-something African-American female. And I was kind of an anomaly just coming into the office with what I was coming in with. And so it was quite easy to say, oh, you're just stressed. You're just a stressed black girl. And you're working really hard on your degree. And this is your first time living away from home and you're in a new town. So it's, it's stress. And I believed it because I was like, well, what else could it be? Because I've been fairly healthy my whole life. I've never been sick. Um, and so I kind of believed that rhetoric and I didn't investigate further. But it is definitely for the medical students or for anyone in this, in the field, when someone comes to you with something that's not normal for them, you know, ask a couple more questions, you know, like just take the extra two seconds to ask maybe one or two probing open-ended questions to get more context around what's happening. And for me, it just didn't happen. And I didn't think, I didn't look for it either. You know, I was very much, you know, I just was taught the doctor's always right. Listen, you do what they say, you go home and you quote, get better. There was no part of the dialogue in my how I was taught to interface with physicians or medicine or anything. And the worst thing about that is that even once the diagnosis was made, you found yourself back in the same position of having to advocate for yourself in order to get the treatment that might work for you. Not just that, but to understand what was going on with you. And that's mm-hmm. even more worrying because at that point, a diagnosis of a very significant condition has been made. Yeah. And I think it's one of those, one of those, like, I always say I was kind of in a bubble, right? I just, like, I didn't know what I didn't know. I just knew something wasn't right. And I knew after having a couple of different physicians see me and do a second opinion, third opinion, I was like, you know, I had questions, but I didn't feel empowered to ask them because I was like, well, they must be right. They're the doctor. What do I know? You know, I don't know anything. So I, I have to just kind of accept whatever they're telling me and just do whatever they say. And so, you know, you do that for a couple of years and you're like, well, wait a minute. They're not even living my life. They're not with me. They're not in my body. They don't know what I'm experiencing at all. And then how would they know unless I say something? And that's when I decided I'm going to start saying something because otherwise they're not going to know. And then whose fault is it when I'm grumbling? You know, I was like, man, I would have appointments and my husband at the time would drive me home. He's like, why, why didn't you tell the doctor about, you know, the numbness, you know, when you get hot? And I was like, that's just what MS is. Don't worry about it. And he was like, but you didn't say anything. And I was like, no. So then he's like, well, you can't complain. And I'm like, well, maybe not. And then we, you know, go home and back to the life. And then it would be a hot day. And I'm like laid out on the couch and I can't get up for two or three days. And then I'm like, yeah, I should have said something. So after a, a couple of you know years of kind of being this passive patient and just 
not engaging with my own health was kind of, that was a light bulb for me. Like I needed to like get involved because I've been involved in other things, advocating and helping in other spaces, but I, I couldn't make the bridge to help myself at the time because the disease felt so much bigger than me. And so it was hard to like reach that bridge to like pull up and say, okay, this is your life. You only got this one. So you better get into it or get out of it. Which one are you going to do? I, I totally get that. And I can understand how you made that call. Do you think this is a generational thing? If you were 50 years older, do you think you would have been as willing to question the diagnosis? Would you just have gone home and eaten your broccoli like he'd have asked you to do? Absolutely. 50, if I, yes. Because, you know, my parents are of that generation. So when, when they, you know, when I told them what the, you know, what the condition was and they were just like, what is that? No, you know, and of course, coming from an African-American family, our health history is just word of mouth. You know, like auntie so-and-so had the sugar. And so you're like, okay, I don't have sugar. So that's diabetes. So I don't have that. And they're like, well, one of your aunts had something that no one could pronounce, but she died. And I'm like, well, do we know what that was? Does multiple sclerosis, could that be the one thing? And they're like, maybe. So we had no sense of like history or, or any kind of health history. And so my parents were just like, you just do what, do what the doctor says. And after like, yeah, after four years of doing that, doing it that way, no one supported me writing my little speech to the physician. They really thought I was just off the reserve. They're just like, who does that? You don't question the doctor. What do you know? And I'm like, but I know me and that should count. Like I'm the expert in me. So I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. And I, I was like, you know what? I don't care. You all were not. <laughs> I said, like, unless you're doing the shot every day, then you really don't have a, you, you don't really have much to say to me about how I'm talking to my doctors moving forward. And so I just had to let, I had to let that old school model just be over there. I love you, mom and dad. Thank you. And I'm going into this doctor with my little speech and we're going to just see what happens. If I get shot down, at least I tried and I'll just, <laughs> but I do think it's a generational thing. And when I used to do talks, a lot of, you know, around the country and there would be older, older folks in the audience. And a lot of them had had MS for 20, 30 years. And, you know, they just kind of, they just did the model and they were just like, that was so brave to do that. And I'm like, well, you can do it right now. I was like, if you're on a therapy that you don't like, or it's not working, or there's side effects that you don't like, and your quality of life is not where it needs to be, I said, you got to say something. And they said, if they don't listen, then you get a new doctor. You find a team that will support you in your life goals. Do you think that you are seeing evidence of this now happening more often? People are much more likely to question a diagnosis, question a treatment, ask a lot more questions about what's happening to them and for them. Yeah, I would agree 100% that there's definitely been a shift in, in that paradigm. And I think, and you know, and some of it's, you know, access to the internet, like everyone's a doctor because they've got Google on their phone. So you get those folks that are just like, I have researched, I've been on Facebook and Google and WebMD and I know exactly what I have. And I'm like, well, that's the place to start. And please talk to your physician about what you're learning because there could be more information that could help. So I think that shift of access to information has really revolutionized the whole patient-physician relationship. <laughs> so I kind of tease my physician friends. I'm like, who's smarter, you or Dr. Google? And they're like, depends on what it is and depends on the day. And I'm like, fair enough, because at the end of the day, we're human trying to help other humans. But I do think there has been a shift in the ability for patients to really start advocating for themselves in a way that's healthy. Like I think there's always going to be folks that are going to be 
on both ends of the spectrum, those who never say one word and those who are going to find every random herb treatment and swear by God that that's the, the cure and the antidote. But I think for the most part, people have seen, they're starting to, to say it's okay for me to have a voice and speak to my life. And at the end of the day, we want to live and be as healthy as we can be. And I think physicians you know, want that too for their patients. It's just the balance of the type of conversations that are being had now, I think are more, more, more fulfilling. And we're learning more about the human condition, I think, than before. It's not just clinical stuff and here's your diagnosis, go home. It's here's your, here's the diagnosis, here's your life. Here's how you're living your life. Here's how your life can be as good as it can be. Here's treatments or therapies that can help you. So I think there has been a shift. I agree that there has been a shift. To the doctors who are listening to this, who are terrified of you and terrified that you will come in with some treatment that really is snake oil, somehow you found on Dr. Google. What do you say to those people? How do you think that they can be respectful of your right to question, but at the same time, be respectful of the science of which they are the custodians? Yeah, a lot of times when, when you're having conversations with people, it's really about finding that, that empathy and finding like the compassionate curiosity. So if someone does come in with therapy, that's just completely, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's not, a good, it's just not good. Like there's so many things wrong with it. And it's still the physician feeling defensive about when I now have to prove my point. It's like, well, you know, let's have a conversation about what you found. Let's have a conversation about what I know and what I found. And then there's a way to have a dialogue that the patient, even if it does have snake oil, snake oil therapy, they, they'll learn something and they'll say, you know what? I appreciate you listening to my concern because really I'm not trying to be you as a physician. I just want you to hear me and understand my fears and understand that I want to get better. And I don't want to, I'm scared about injection site reactions or I'm scared about the needle. And if I can swallow, take a, can I, if I could get a pill instead of a shot. Is that an option? And maybe, and then you kind of bridge that gap. I think for whatever reason, the way the US medical system has kind of been situated is kind of a paternalistic, I know what's best for you. You don't say anything. So then when patients are like, no, I know me and I do want to say something, that kind of threatens that system. And that's where that tension comes. But I feel like the physician, that, that model of like, I know what's best for you and I don't want to hear anything. I think that's also changed as well with some of the, the, the newer, younger physicians coming along and the idea of just having a conversation. I mean, you don't have much time. You have 15 minutes to kind of get, get through the visit. But I think starting with a, coming from a, a compassionate or empathetic ear will bring the patient along to see that this, the therapy or the treatment that they come up with together is going to be beneficial because you have, a, you have a stake in it, I have a stake in it. And so we have shared goals and the outcome really is for you to be well. And so if people, if the physicians remember that, that'll keep them from getting freaked out about the patient with the whole, you know, files of articles and snippets of screenshots from things. And I, I had a couple of patients that, were, that came to my talks with like manila folders of all this research and information they gathered from all over. And I was like, I can't, I mean, I can't validate or not validate it, but I know that if you have a conversation and you bring this information that can only help you get to a sense of wellness for you and help you manage your disease on your terms. And so I think that's like, a, it's a balancing act. The challenge, of course, is exactly what you say. It's the 15-minute consult and the time that 
that someone's paying for that time. And of course, the clock starts ticking the minute you walk into that office. And yeah. as soon as you open the first manila folder and work to the first five papers, time's up. And you've got a right. stack of them to go. <laughs> and then you're like, by the way, what am I doing when I go home again? What, where am I taking eight, eight red pills and one blue? Or am I doing the purple pill? And then I got to, then he's got to stop and chart and bill and do, I mean, the whole U.S. health system and the, how we've set up these systems is just really horrible. Like it, 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 it serves no one, right? The system only is there to serve itself. It doesn't serve the physician. They can't do the medicine that you really want to do because they got a bill and code and 15 minutes and you have a 15 minute for a new patient and God forbid, God forbid there's a something else. And then you have to reschedule and come back in two weeks for another follow-up. And it's just, it's a cycle of just kind of nonsense, but here, you know, but that's what we got. So we have to make the best of it, but. Well, for what it's worth, it's not just in the US. I've worked in the UK and I've worked in Australia and it's not much different. To be honest, we have yeah. time pressures on us to mm-hmm. deliver things. Now, you've said something that's quite interesting. You said future healthcare will be a virtual experience. What did you mean by that? I think at the time, I was thinking about telehealth and telemedicine and this idea of connecting outside of the office and connecting with technology, with your phone or your you know, electronic device and kind of making healthcare and the whole experience more accessible to more people. Because if you think about you know, populations that are low income and or, you know, working a thousand, like the essential workers, those folks that have so many life pressures on them, and they just happen to also be sick. Taking off work to go to the doctor is out of the question. Like you, you're not going to take off work to go to the doctor. What you're going to do is cut that pill in half, push through the pain, wait for something to really, 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 really be bad, go into the ED, and then, then it's legit. And then you can probably take time off. But by then, your health issue is exacerbated to critical stage four, whatever. And now you've been you know, now you're in survival mode for your health, not just everything else. And so at the time, I was like, yeah, you know, smartphones are you know on on the rise, and you can do telemedicine, and we can you know Skype, and Zoom. Then healthcare will it will healthcare will have to follow will come have to come along. And I think the pandemic just kind of forced that idea wide open in a way that it was necessity. Like we. That's all we have because we're on lockdown. You're not going anywhere. So if you have an appointment, if you can't see a doctor, you're going to call and you're going to do a video chat and they're going to bill for the 15 minute, you know, telemedicine consult. And then you're going to get your meds through your phone and order it and do a drive through and have it mailed to you. (laughs) And you're not going to see a human being in real life until who knows when, right? And so I, I think that was what I was, I think that was the idea then. But for me, it felt more like, you know, robots and, you know, galactic stuff and screens and, you know, much more sci-fi and Star Trek-y in my brain. But we're kind of there now. So it's kind of a weird, what a quote for me to say. I don't even remember saying that. I say so much random stuff. (laughs) But that does sound like something I'd say. But you're talking to a physician who loves to see patients face to face. I love to see them because we get a chance to connect in a way that you can't on the internet. I've often said that for me, and I do some telehealth consults, it's like playing tennis with a pair of snow boots on. You just can't do the thing that you're meant to do. And you, you, you can't touch that person. You can't make eye contact. You can't pick up the cues that are being offered to right. you in a face-to-face experience. How do you feel about that? 
No, I think that's right. I think I think what happens sometimes with society and pressures, we swing so far out one way, then we got to swing back the other way. And so we're like, oh, we're going, everything's going to be digital and virtual and you won't need it. And then we were forced into it by the pandemic. And then we're like, oh my God, I just want to see and touch another human being. I just want to hug somebody that's not my kids because I see them 24 hours a day. I want to see another person and get other energy. And so I think, I think that's true. I, I think once again, is there a balance where you, is there a balance? And I feel like as we kind of roll out this second phase of pandemic, I think you'll get the balance. And then, the, you know, the patients who need to be seen in the office because of that's a, it works better for the treatment and it works better for the physician. Then, the, then those patients will always be there. And the folks are like, Hey, I'm just, I'm fine over here. I'm stable. I'm good. 15 minutes on the phone is fine. So I think there's a, there's a, there's room for that face to face contact to come to kind of come back into play. I think we've just swung so far, <laughs> swung so far because of the pandemic that we had to scramble to kind of like put these new, these new systems in place. But there is something to be said about human beings in that connection, in that the spirit connection and being able to see someone and be in their energy and, and feel their experiences. It's, it's nothing like that. And it does help. Yeah, I agree. And I think you're right. We will swing back the other way to an extent. Mm-hmm. And, I, and you're also right. We've got to the point where we've had telehealth and it has been of service to us and will continue to be of service to us in some situations. Now, tell us about Families Forward Virginia, because that's the organization that you lead. Where can we find you and what do you do? Well, that's so interesting, Williams, because, you know, I've been in healthcare 15, 20 years and then pandemic comes and then all of a sudden this opportunity comes to kind of look at well-being, you know, in a whole different space. And so in my in my old hospital job, I was a community benefit prevention person. So I was always out in the community touching the people like, hey, Mr. So-and-so, I need you to eat your vegetables. I don't want to see you in this hospital. And by the way, check your blood pressure. And I was like that community advocate trying to get the people to come on to the hospital, get your primary care, do your basic checks. And so I kept wondering what happens to the folks after they leave the hospital? They go home to these lives, right? Some of the lives are hard. Some of the lives are not conducive to maintain the wellness that they got in the hospital. And I kept pushing further upstream, like what happens to where people live, work, and play? And then you realize that's the 80% of the health that really exists. What happens to the patients after they leave the hospital? And then you start following them and you realize that some folks are living in subsidized housing. And that's why you keep coming back with headaches because there's mold in your apartment building. Wow. In the whole apartment building, you're all living together, working together, hanging out together, getting sick together, going to the hospital together, coming home together, just get sick all over again. And so I got more and more intrigued by this whole going further and further upstream. And I was on the board of Families Board Virginia, which is really a prevention service. We do maltreatment, child abuse prevention, financial strengthening, and family wellness. And so we provide wraparound services either through prevention programs for substance abuse, domestic violence abuse, sexual abuse. And we also do a home visiting. We have three home visiting models that actually go into the home to do family training, parent strengthening, and just really child welfare checks and kind of all the things that you would love to have in families before they fray to these impossible situations where the children are leaving the home, they're in the foster care system, and then it's a whole, then you're you know, battling health and other things. And so when the opportunity came for me to, to step in the role as CEO, I just knew it was my time to kind of pivot 
and just move further, further, further upstream. And now I can get really to the people, really there, really in their lives and understanding the concept of the family. And what I've learned from just looking at from the patient side, as well as now is that, you know, family really is the cornerstone of society. And so if we don't prepare and help strengthen families where people live, work and play, we're going to keep seeing people fall through the cracks of all these various systems that weren't really designed for people to get out, get well, you know, financially get stable. You know, it's all these cracks that you know, some of these families fall into. And once they're there, that's it. So at Families Forward, we are really looking at how do we provide those wraparound services and protective factors for families to, to empower themselves. And so I've always said to myself that I was always a connector of resources, whether it's health information, now it's more prevention, primary prevention services. But at the end of the day, I'm like a conduit. I want to connect you so you can live your best life, best family life, best, best health life. And if one of those two things happen, then the other things will fall into place. So that's kind of, that's been my philosophy. And I've been in the job for eight months and you know, health, human services is different than health services. And so a lot of times I'm getting all my acronyms mixed up and I'm like, no, <laughs> it's not community benefit, it's child, you know, it's community based blah, blah, blah programming and, you know, understanding where we've got these natural partnerships with communities to help, you know, support, support the people where they live and, and meeting people where they are with the resources they need when they need it is kind of always been my desire to kind of connect people. And so now in this new world, I get to do it in a, in a different way. And I feel like that's it's been a natural progression of the advocacy. So now I'm advocating for children and families, not just patients in the way in the healthcare sense. It's just like everyone deserves to have a healthy life. Everyone deserves to be able to live in their homes. Everyone deserves to keep their children. You know, where you can't, then there's systems for that. But if you can and you really want to parent better and be a positive parent and learn and, and strengthen and be self-sufficient, then I want to help you do that. And so that's kind of what my organization does. So, Where do you get all this energy from? I mean, you're just a powerhouse of energy. Yeah, I, I say from God, I have a really, really big spiritual base. And I think when you love what you do, it fuels you. And so I've, I've been very blessed and fortunate that in all the roles I've ever had, I've always loved it. I've loved, you know, healthcare. That was my first love. I loved it. I loved the idea that I could help somebody or be part, and I couldn't be hands-on, like I was not going to be a nurse or a physician. I didn't have that ministry. But if I could help you manage and put stuff together, I'm your girl. And so now with this idea of family with my own children and understanding families shift and change and being a parent is hard and there's no manual for that. Like there is no manual for how to be a parent. You just, you get a baby and then you just figure it out and you just hope you don't do something too, too wrong. And so I just, I can identify with that. And so the energy comes from these children, comes from my love of helping people and, you know, just being spiritually grounded and, and knowing that there's better things ahead. You just got to stay the course and keep working hard and keep loving each other and keep staying connected. So, yeah, I think that's where I get my energy. And I like being outside in the sun. So that's another place. Yeah. Vitamin D is always good. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it's been a joy speaking with you and I hope that we will connect again very soon. We should. This has been a lot of fun. I hope that the audience out there, you all grab a nugget or two and maybe some laughter and, you know, just remember that we're all connected and this, the idea of humanity is now and we can, we can be better and do better for each other and with each other. 
the Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.